Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? I'm sitting here recording just after Arsenal have been beaten 3-1 by Ren in the Europa League. It was all going okay and then Socrates got sent off and after that Ren really took advantage. They had 19 attempts on goal. 15 of those 19 attempts came after the red card. So a red card can have a big impact, but often you see a team that organizes itself and stays disciplined and hard to break down. On this occasion, though, it was quite the opposite. Wren had so much time and space and uh, possession, so many chances. 3-1, it's a, a fairly emphatic victory. And when you think about the saves that Petr Cech made throughout that first half and second half in particular, he made a string of really, really good saves to keep the score somewhat respectable. It could have been worse. So all in all, a pretty bad night. And it leaves us, A, with a huge amount to do for the second leg, not least because we won't have Lacazette. And, uh, of course, after his red card tonight, we won't have Socrates for the second leg. That doesn't make things easier. And as well as that, going into a big game against Manchester United on Sunday... Uh, I'm not sure this is the ideal preparation for that game either. They've had a massive lift in midweek from their European exploits, a, a last gasp win over PSG thanks to VAR and uh, a well-taken penalty by Marcus Rashford. And conversely, we've had the win knocked out of our sails after a couple of good wins, a couple of good performances. It feels a little bit like a, a sort of a step backwards. Um, so what's that old adage about two steps forward, one step back? That's kind of where we are, but I'm not sure how many steps forward and how many steps back we're taking. It could be like 1.3 steps forward and 1.29 steps back. I don't know. I'm not a mathematician. I'm just a guy with a microphone, and we're going to talk a little bit in a moment with James. We're going to recap the game and uh, and that performance against Ren and, and how it all went down. So we'll be talking about that in a couple of moments' time with James. A little bit later on, we'll be getting a Manchester United perspective on the game this weekend. Things have turned around for them, of course, uh, since Ole Gunnar has been made manager. I'll be talking to Daniel Harris about uh, how things are at United now since Mourinho's gone and the run that they're on and, and all that kind of stuff. So that's coming up a bit later. Now, though, well, we uh, have to deal with the matter at hand, and that is a, a defeat 3-1 to Rennes in the Europa League. James, that's a badly evening. It was a badly evening. And normally when we do the podcast, we've had a bit of time to digest the game. Uh, but I don't know about you, I've had whatever it's been, an hour and a half or something like that, in which I've mainly been writing or speaking about the game. So yeah. this is still quite raw 
for me. Mm, me I too. Me too. The only thing I've digested is a piece of toast, which I had to actually mm. eat here in the few seconds before we uh, before we started recording. But there's a lot to get through. Uh, a poor night, you know. I mean, it had started very well with Alex Iwobi's goal in the third or fourth minute, and you thought, okay, that's quite good. Away from home, score nice and early. Any issues with the team selection? Was there anything in it that surprised you? Uh, I have to say, for me, it was perhaps a little strong at the back, as it turns out that was <laughs> probably a good thing. Um, I thought he might rest one of Koscielny or Socrates and probably Koscielny. Um But beyond that, it was pretty much what I expected. Yeah, I mean, we're asking a huge amount of Koscielny at the moment. Uh, but I think if, you know, one of the things I think we learnt tonight is that for whatever reason, Emery doesn't consider Maitland-Niles mm. ready to play right back in these games. It might be a fitness thing. He might not be quite there yet, or it may just be his inexperience in that role. Uh, if he did, I think he would have started this game and you would take Koscielny out and give him a rest before United. But the mm. fact that he neither did that at the start nor during the game... I think it tells its own story. But I thought the team was good. You know, he went with four at the back. And I think if he's going to play four at the back away from home, like he did at Spurs, as a rule, I think we can expect him to go with his Monreal's rather than his Kalasinaches, you know, slightly more defensive-minded fullbacks, just to give that mm. balance. And also, we started pretty well. I mean, I was watching that first half thinking, we could score goals tonight. We could score you know, two or three goals and be in a really strong position come the second leg. Yeah, we did have a chance for the second goal. It will be set up uh, Torreira, I think it was, in yeah. a shot straight at the keeper, really. You would have uh, liked to see him do a little bit better there. But, you know, we were playing quite well. We were creating chances. Uh, some of them... Ma- went through, didn't he? And he looked onside to me and he was flagged offside. Yeah, when was that, though? That was... Um, oh, I'm not sure exactly. Hang on, I can, I can find that. I can find that. Yeah, half an hour, about 29 minutes when he went through, and it did look like he was onside. Would you have uh, Would you have put money on him scoring it, even if he did go through? Well, he probably would have put it in Rosette the way he played tonight. My I mean, goodness. My goodness. Not not good. Uh, a, a Walcottian performance, I thought, from Aubameyang. I mean, the thing is, with his pace and his movement, I think he did stretch them and cause them problems in the first half, and it created space for Iwobi and Ozil, who I thought looked dangerous. But technically, everything he did was very rough around the edges. Yeah. And the, the funny thing is, I mean, it is quite a lot of the time. You know, he, he quite often ha- has quite a bad all-round game, but he scores, and I think you sort of forgive it. I think maybe coming off the derby and the missed penalty, I think people are a lot less forgiving tonight, and yeah. I can understand that. Maybe so, maybe so. And I think people were perhaps expecting a bit of a response from him tonight, yeah. and it wasn't forthcoming. And actually, uh, Patreon members, uh, there's a podcast there, myself and Tim Stillman did a, a live stream on Wednesday night, and we were talking about Obama Yang a bit, and we were trying to figure out, you know, can you think of when he's ever really played well, like had a really good game, you know, where, where you yeah. thought wow, what a performance from him. Like, he scored some amazing goals and he's made incredible contributions. Uh, and and maybe, you know, in the midst of time, I've forgotten a game or two where, you know, he has played very well and stood out. But generally speaking, he isn't that kind of a player, is he? Where you go, wow, his all-round game was really great tonight and he scored a couple of goals. It's it's usually one or the other. Um, mm. I can think of one game and I think that tells its own story and that would be probably the home North London derby this season. I thought he had a really excellent Fair enough. all-round game in yeah. that one. But I think you are right for the most part. And 
And I'm not saying this to try and slate Aubameyang. Or have no, it's just the kind of player he is, isn't he? Yeah, he's an elite goal scorer, but he's not. You wouldn't say he's a great dribbler. You wouldn't say he's a great passer. But then neither are some of the best goal scorers in the history of the game. Yeah. You know, think of your Inzaghi's, your Gary Lineker's, you know, people who didn't have an all-round game, but they were just brilliant in the penalty box and brilliant finishers. And I think Aubameyang's mm. in that bracket. The problem is when he doesn't finish... Uh, you know, he's, he's slightly open to criticism. Yeah, everything swims into focus uh, or mm-hmm. swims out of focus, whatever it is. But uh, yeah, he wasn't good tonight. And, uh, you know, at the end when he was taken off, he looked very unhappy on the sideline. And, uh, you know, my feeling on that is he's every right to be unhappy if he's unhappy at his own performance and not necessarily the decision to take him off. Uh, we can talk a little bit more about the the decisions that Unai Emery made, uh, which I thought were a little bit curious um, now that I've had a bit of time to think about them and uh, a little bit of interaction on Twitter with somebody who I'm just going to uh, name here. I am Ifijika, I think it is. So uh, credit to him for reminding me of something he could do. But I'll, I'll bring that up in a moment. So, you know, it's 1-0 and we're away from home. And they finished this game, James, with 19 attempts on goal. Mm. 15 of those attempts came after the red card. Uh, which really tells you how much of an impact that sending off had. I mean, what are your thoughts on the, on the red card? I thought the second yellow was a bit harsh, I have to say, but I can also see why the referee went for his pocket in that situation because it looked like, what was the guy, Saar? Uh, you know, it looked like he got away from him and Socrates is the wrong side. And I think when you're a defender like Socrates, who we all know, likes to play on the edge a bit and is physical, I don't think you get the benefit of the doubt in a situation like that when the referee isn't quite fully sighted and we were able to see with replays that perhaps it was Saar holding on to him first. Oh, Jesus Christ! (laughs) Calm down. (laughs) I've got my mum's Jack Russell here and she's very excitable. That scared Uh, the fucking shit out of me. God. They were just sat at my feet so quietly, and then obviously someone's walked past the front door. Oh well, I'm glad that you know. Oh my you God, my heart kept you on your toes. My heart is just. I'm just trying to get it going again. Um, <laughs> Sorry, man. That's okay. Uh, but you don't get when you're that kind of a defender. You don't get the benefit of the doubt if the referee is in two minds and he's not quite sure. When you're the kind of defender who kicks people up in the air and is someone who who's uh, into a bit of the old uh, uh, Greek wrestling, mm. it's going to go against you. And I think that's what happened there. And I think he had spent the first half kind of doing a bit of kicking people up in the mm. air. You know he. He got away with one where he kicked a guy pretty much straight up the arse. Yeah, right <laughs> in the gooch. Right in yeah. the gooch, he got him. <laughs> um, and then the booking, you know, he kind of pulled his upper body out of it. But at the end of the day, he had thrown his legs in there, the first one. So I kind of understood why that was given. Ben Arthur was on a good run and he, he knew, I think, that he was going to bring him down. I thought it was quite cynical. I initially, when I saw the the second one, I was like, oh, for God's sake, he's he's... He's, he's given that away. But I think on reflection, looking at the replay, it is really pretty harsh. But his arm is kind of tangled up with the other guy. His positioning's not great on it as well. Mm. Um, it's just one of those where with Socrates, you know you have to take the rough with the rough, really. You know, mm. like he, that is kind of 
He is that player. He is absolutely that kind of player. And so there's always going to be a slight tightrope act. And tonight he was on the wrong side of it. But I was pretty gutted because I think you could sort of sense straight away, you know, with that crowd, we did so well. This is the biggest game in Ren's modern history. You know, it was huge. Like people were paying thousands of pounds, I think, of euros rather, to get tickets to get into the game. It was a massive occasion for them. And we quietened them down by scoring in the third minute. And as soon as he went off, suddenly the stadium came back to life. And you just thought, ah... We've made a game of this. We've made a contest of it when it didn't need to be. We've made this next 40, 50 minutes, however long it's going to be, difficult for ourselves. And I have to say, despite that, we were unlucky. I mean, we were double punished. We were punished hard because not only did we get the sending off, the guy bangs in the shot from about 30 yards immediately afterwards. Yeah, I I don't know that our players necessarily did themselves a great deal of justice. If there were awards being handed out tomorrow for bravery and willingness to throw yourself on the line in the the line of duty, they wouldn't be getting any. Uh, well, you know, the first one hit the wall and then there was a, there was a lot of sort of jumping. And um, do you remember that? It was probably, was it the World Cup in Japan and Korea where there was a picture of the Argentinian wall and they're all turned away? Someone's taking a free kick and they're all turned like and they've got their hands up and everything and somebody photoshopped a load of handbags in, the, uh, in it. Yeah. It was a bit like that. I mean... It- it's difficult because you want your best defenders in the box, right? Because you're worried about a cross. But the four guys in the wall were Aubameyang, Shaka, Mustafi and Ozil. It's not ideal, is I'm, it? I'm not having Mesut Ozil in a wall. No. <laughs> I'm sorry. No. And, and I thought Ozil played quite well, to be honest. I thought he was one of our brighter players on the night. But, I, you know, I wouldn't have him in a wall. No. He might as well just go and sort of stand on the goal line, I think, and just be yeah. in the way there. I mean, it's, you know, he's uh, he's not the guy who'd want to be sort of, you know, catching a bullet for you. Um, and, yeah, they didn't cover themselves in glory, but it was a great strike. And yeah. Petacek had no chance. I mean, I actually thought Petacek did all right for the most part on the night. He couldn't have kept that one out, that's for no, sure. I thought he did very well, you know, all things mm. considered. The amount of shots that he faced and some of the saves that he made... You know, he kept it respectable, to be perfectly honest. So, yeah, a real double whammy. And I can see why, you know, we we move Mkhitaryan to right back. Don't make a change at halftime or before halftime. You know, give yourself some uh, minutes to think about it. See the half out. We did that fairly successfully. You know, they didn't look like scoring again in the first half. So you go in at halftime and you consider your options. And I'm not quite sure what Unai Emery considered no. I think you make the point about Maitland-Niles. I think it's clear. Or well, Kolasinac. This is what the person I spoke to on Twitter, yeah. uh, I am um, Ifi said, because afterwards I was like, well, you know, he didn't really have a great deal. He had only one defender on the bench, well, one right-sided defender. And I think what we can take from from the lack of Maitland-Niles tonight is that Emery really doesn't fancy Maitland-Niles uh, right back, even in an emergency. And that's mm. what it was tonight. It was an emergency. He preferred to play Mkhitaryan in hindsight, as it was pointed out to me. You could easily have brought Kolasinac on, move Monreal into centre-half, yeah. and that's something that's a little bit more natural. And then what you've got is Mkhitaryan on one side, Iwobi on the other. 
then you can tuck in, uh, you know, two midfielders. Maybe you sacrifice Ozil or somebody. Um, but, you know, there's you see teams, don't you, after they go down to 10 men and they can be organized and they can make life really difficult for the opposition. Tonight was just the opposite. Like, we... We made it, felt it like so, one-way traffic. Well, it was one-way traffic, though. So I, I'm not sure what Emery did. I, I, I genuinely don't quite understand why he didn't make a change at halftime. No, I think, the, you know, that is a really good point. I said the same myself in my post-match video. You could have brought Kolasinac on, shifted Monreal in next to Koscielny, kept Mustafi at right back. Maybe, maybe Kolasinac's muscular problem is worse than we know, but the fact he came on at all suggests that's probably not the case. Mm. Um I don't get it. Credit to Mkhitaryan because the guy is about as far as a right back, far from a right back rather than you as you could be. Yeah. And I thought he did okay. You know, he yeah, was yeah. all right. Did his best. Uh, yeah, and I wasn't. I don't think it necessarily cost us the game having Mkhitaryan at right back, but I think we would have had more stability in the team if we'd gone with a more experienced back four, certainly. Um, and to be honest, anything that keeps Mustafi out of the centre is kind of all right with me. Uh, I, I, I don't really get the midfield change. We went to a narrow midfield, kind of a diamond, and we vacated the wings essentially, which I thought left our fullbacks a bit exposed. I thought a lot exposed. Maybe we was a lot exposed. Ganduzi was brought on, I think, to support Monreal because Iwobi hadn't been giving him the most protection. But I'm not sure Ganduzi gave him much more. No. I think Iwobi's a strange guy to bring off in those circumstances. I thought he was having a good game and he gives you an outlet. He gives you someone who can carry the ball, who can hold the ball, yeah, which Aubameyang yeah. wasn't doing. Yeah. You know, some of the, some of the hold-up play from Iwobi tonight was excellent. You know, even long balls yeah. across field, he was he was uh, getting in front of his man and holding the ball up well. I mean, I think in in that sort of situation. You know, when you're down to 10 men and you're away from home, I think you set up as compact as you can possibly set up. Uh, we somehow left both wings completely open. I don't know why we didn't just play four, four and one. Um, you know, and, yeah, and like, work- exactly. Can I just jump in? You could have gone four at the back. You could have put, let's say, uh, even if you put Maitland-Niles on at right back, you could have Mkhitaryan in front of him, protecting yeah. him. We know he does a good job doing that. You can put... If you're worried about Iwobi, you can put Kolasinac in front of Monreal, go with two bags of four like we had at Man City, because 1-1 is a perfectly good result. And to be honest, 2-1 ain't that bad either. No, it's not. I mean, it would have meant sacrificing somebody, uh, and it probably would have been Mesut Ozil, Mm -hmm. I think. Um I'm, but I'm Emery's so, not been shy to do that. No, past, he hasn't you know, been shy like, to do that. And I do wonder if, you know, if... I wonder. I'm just sitting here and I'm speculating to myself and I'm wondering if, you know, the healing of the rift, if that's what's happened, he didn't want to open that up again? Even if it maybe, might have been the right thing to do? You know, um... I, I also wondered, and maybe this is maybe this is crazy, but I kind of thought... Well, is he bringing Iwobi off because he's got one eye on Sunday and he thinks I can shut this out oh. and take a one-one and you know keep this guy fresh because Özil's not going to play on Sunday? I don't know. M- I, maybe, yeah, maybe it, it, it didn't work. And and it, I, I, I've given Emery a lot of credit this season. I think he's made some really smart tactical choices. I thought he did against Spurs in our last game. 
But I thought his response to going down to 10 men tonight, you can't say he got it right, he got it wrong. You no. Know, it didn't. It didn't function, did it? No, it really didn't. And the changes actually made us worse. I think the idea of putting Ganduzi on was to give us more midfield control. He didn't do that at all. He lost the ball quite often. I mean, he, he scrapped around for a bit. But I think in both of their goals, uh, you can look at his role in them. Um, I'm not saying he's, you know, entirely culpable, but I think uh, when you come on as a, a sub with, you know, in 50-odd minutes into the game, you should be fresh and you should be willing to put the yards in. I'm not sure he was. We can talk about those um, individual moments in a, in a second. But, mm-hmm. you know, Emery is a coach who has this season, even at times when we've been playing okay or when you don't expect it, he has made halftime changes, you know? And tonight, when it demanded a halftime change, it had to. You know, I, I, I genuinely am flummoxed that he, did, he didn't make a change at the break. You know, what, what I'm not sure what the thinking was. You know, Mkhitaryan uh, has got to be an important part of the, the plan for Manchester United on Sunday. So why do you ask him to play at right back in a position that's completely alien to him, which is going to um, sap him um, energy-wise as well? I mean, what are you saving Maitland-Niles for? You know, yeah, it's very it's, true. it's a really a really strange set of decisions. Ginduzi for the second goal, I think, was really really slow to get over and to block the cross. He did that thing that drives me mad. You know, when a player kind of runs over and then stands off and put his ar- puts his arms behind his back because they're taught put your arms behind your back because you know you might give away a penalty, whatever it is. But it's sort of going through the motions, defending. Jesus oh, fucking again. Christ. I know, sorry. Oh, my goodness. That's okay. Carry on. <laughs> but it's it's sort of, you know, defending by numbers in a way. It's just not, it's not strong enough. It's not committed enough. It's not, it's not proactive enough. You know, you just sort of put yourself in a vague position where nobody can complain to you about it. Uh, and the the upside or the downside of that, of course, was the cross came in, which he got nowhere near, and it deflected off Monreal, uh, who I think was unfortunate in that situation, and and in for the second goal. Yeah, I mean the second goal. I'm watching it back now, and actually, what happens is there's a shot from the Ren player. I forget his, I don't know his name. He's number fifteen, and Aubameyang kind of half blocks it. And I almost think the Arsenal players just assume it's going out, either for a corner or a goal kick. They sort of all collectively switch off. Montreal actually completely sort of stops. Aubameyang turns and faces away from play. And I just think that when when the cross comes back in, they're just not really set. They're not really on it. Actually, gets out of the way of it. If you look at it again, I'm just watching it again here. Here, But again... Hang on, here it comes. So the yeah. ball is breaking to the 15. 15 has a shot and it's scuttling away there. Now Ganduzi wanders over, arms behind the back, and he he actually gets out of the way of the cross. That's terrible. That's I mean, really terrible. If they were mistakenly believing that there was VAR in this game, I can kind of understand it because <laughs> we all saw the penalty man you got last night. But yeah, I mean, it's as bad as what you see from the wall earlier. And it's... I just think they switch off as well. And Montreal, I really like Nacho Montreal, but he kind of... Does he just hang a leg out at it? Or is that just pure bad luck? What do you think? Uh, I think kind of bad luck because he's slightly... I mean, if you look at the distance between himself and Gendouzi when when the ball comes in... He's slightly unsighted. He's a little bit unsighted and 
really, yeah, he's, yeah, it sort of hits him more than than anything else. Uh, you know, I don't think anyone's covered themselves in any glory there at all. So two one, Mustafi is urging the troops. Yeah, you know. oh God, that was a sight, wasn't it? Well, Mustafi pointing you know, at his head. Yeah, I know. I mean, I get it, but I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna criticize. There's a lot to criticize him for, but you know, I'm not gonna criticize him for at least trying to to get people to keep their heads up and and to, right. to stay You're in right. the game. You know? I just think in the broader context, obviously, we're looking at it through yeah. the sort of ironic uh, prism. But, you know, I think... Because 2-1, we're absolutely banging the tie. We've got the away yeah. goal advantage. Uh, theoretically, 1-0 would take us through. I mean, although the idea of a 1-0 and a clean sheet mm. feels quite far away at the moment. Um, so it's it's no great disaster yeah. you know I mean, what I do go think on. Go, go on. on I was just going to say I do think it's worth talking again about the sort of second half changes because I I just feel that kind of in every respect they 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 kind of didn't help and I, I find them increasingly difficult to unpick and not just the changes but also the manner in which we sort of chased we looked to try and chase a, a second goal and we, we got caught. You know, it's mm. it's all very odd. And our whole attacking game, it seems to me, in recent weeks has been built upon the idea that when Shaka's playing at that base of the midfield, he's got Iwobi and Mkhitaryan in front of him, you know, to ping balls into. And it just felt like in this game, we had Iwobi sat on the bench, Mkhitaryan at right back and kind of no out ball. Yeah. Uh, and once you take Aubameyang off, I think that's exacerbated. I think as bad as he was... He's at least a, a, a runner, you know, at that end of the pitch. You could sort of chase things down and challenge for stuff. Yeah, I think Xhaka was lucky not to get sent off, to be honest. He was really lucky. He was, he was just, really lucky. I'm just going to have a look at this again. Uh, there was a free kick. Uh, boom, boom, boom. I thought he was going to go. I was absolutely convinced. Here comes the foul. One second now. Just going forward a little bit. It was okay. one of those where you wonder almost if the referee had looked at the Socrates sending off and thought, well... I, uh, look, I know he sort of did that thing where he stopped and the guy kind of ran into him, but when you're on a yellow card, he, he was he was very lucky. He was very yeah. lucky. Um, you've yeah. seen... He, oh, actually, yeah, that's, that's a fucking yellow card. He's yeah, really, he really, really, off. really lucky not to and be And I thought he was... There maybe one of the players who kind of best illustrated the difference between our first half and second half performance. Yeah, I mean, what struck me or what's striking me now, actually, because we're sitting here, we're talking about it and I'm watching it again, is that, you know, when we think about Unai Emery and his tactician uh, hat and his formations and his systems, I wonder how much preparation we've done to play with 10 against 11. Because that looked Mm. like a team that doesn't really know how to play with 10 men. You know, and yeah. and in the past, uh, under Arsene Wenger, I know there's an element of practice makes perfect with it because we had so many players sent off over the years under Wenger. But, you know, I, I can remember plenty of games where we had men sent off and we were competitive. We didn't go to pieces the way that we did tonight. We didn't allow as many chances. I'm sure there were some during the during the years, but you know, there were there were times where you you felt even when we were down to 10 men that well, that's annoying, but it still doesn't really hamper our chances of winning this game. We're still capable of winning the game. And it looks to me that maybe like it's a, a team that hasn't been drilled in 10 versus 11 as often as it should be because 
that's not the way to do it. No, you're right. But I, I feel like that's almost letting them off the hook because I still think there are basic things. You know, we knew... I mean, I don't know anything about Wren. I knew that Saar was quick and they were going to try and use the wings to overlap and, you know, get balls into the box from those wide areas. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, Emery knew that as well. And yet it just felt like we were so naive in the way that we defended that and sought to counteract it. Uh, mm. You know, He was a player in the first half, I was thinking, because I, I heard you and Tim Stillman talk about him as someone who'd been linked with Arsenal in the past. So I thought, OK, let's see what this guy's about. And I thought in the first half... Nacho Monreal looked relatively comfortable against him. I thought he didn't really have a kick. And then the second, we go down to 10 men, the protection's not there. And, I, and he was ripping us apart. You know, he, he well, seemed to be getting in time after time. Well, I mean, that's, again, I think an issue for the way Emery managed the game because all of a sudden this guy, he wasn't going at Monreal with two or three yards uh, of space to run into. He was going at him with a load of space behind him and he was able to to really generate some pace and power to, to drive past Monreal. So there was so much space in those wide areas for their players to get down that, uh, you know, I just think the fact that we didn't close it down at all, really, uh, over the course of the over the course of the, the second half in particular, I think is really poor. The third goal, um, we have the ball really high up the pitch. It's classic th- Arsenal, isn't it? It is. It is. Uh, you know, the more things change, the more things stay the same. Um, you know, we have the ball high up the pitch. Monreal loses it, plays a bad pass towards Aaron Ramsey, who's not there, and then throws a bit of a tantrum, which for a player of his experience is really not good enough. I'm not sure that, you know, with the best will in the world, he was going to get back, but it's about the the example it sets and it's about you know um your 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 duty as a defender uh, to get back as quickly as you can into your position um mm. they spread the ball they had lots of space down their left hand side because everything was lopsided because we were trying to keep the ball up the other end of the pitch they broke i have to say it's a fantastic cross like inch perfect beautiful cross a really really good header and finish from from Sar, but questions have got to be asked of Matteo Genduzzi again. You know he was overtaken by Aaron Ramsey. He could see the danger and he didn't do anything about it. Yeah, he looks at it several times. Yeah, he knows that guy's outside him. Uh, you know, I think he really he's jogging. Done more. He's, he's, jogging. he's fresher than everyone else on the pitch as well. Um, so he he ought to have sprinted and got back there. I think Shed uh, Klasenac as well. Yeah, he knows Monreal has been caught out there. He knows he's the guy playing in front of him. He should be doing more to get back. Instead, he's kind of hovering near the centre-forward position. Uh, Lucas Torreira, I have to say, is in the box, I think, uh, at the time when we lose the ball and doesn't really get much back, further back than that. That's so not it, the it, first time that's happened, actually, is it? No, this it's season. not. And, I'm going to look at it here again. In fairness to him, I think that's genuinely down to instruction rather than his own uh, kind of mistake. You know, he's playing as the right-sided player in sort of a midfield diamond, and part of that role is is to get forward. But I just think at that point in the game, you've got to be a bit more conservative. You've got to realise with 10 men, your chances of getting that second goal are slim. And that 2-1, look, it's not great. But you're a bit bad, you're a bit bruised, but you've got a fantastic chance of overturning it. Yeah, and, and actually, actually, you know, in the build-up to that throw, the TV cameras are on Emery. 
they're on him. And what we have is, okay, so we've got, we're down to 10 men. We've got one, two, three, four, five, six men in the opposition half. I know we have to get some men close to the ball and everything else, but Torreira's about to go into the box. Kolasinac is in the box. Ramsey's in the 18-yard uh, area, as is Monreal. Genduzzi a bit behind, and Xhaka sort of deeper in, in midfield there. But the cameras are on Emery. So if there was an issue for him with the way the, the, the players were set up, like if he wanted Torreira to sit deeper you can be quite sure he will be shouting from the sideline because he does that all the time when there's something he wants to get across to his players. So he's not necessarily unhappy with where they are and where they're trying to be in the full knowledge that once they get the ball and they lose the ball, here it goes, I'm just looking at it again. I mean, what you have to say, and you know, I know we don't like to give too much praise to the opposition, it's an outstanding counter-attack. It is. They execute it perfectly uh, and I think Emery's probably thinking well we've got men up the field hopefully we can kind of box the game in stop being so exposed at the back by dominating the territory oh, what, a but, cr- what a cross it's a brilliant first time cross it is a brilliant cross and you know I think even with a left back there there's a chance Saar meets that running onto that ball and it, it is just frustrating because we had the ball at the other end of the pitch and conceding the space of 10 seconds but mm. And it's a big, big goal in the tie. It really changes the tie. Especially the timing of it as well. Yeah. The timing of Uh, it. You know, it's what, 89 minutes or 88 and a half minutes, something like that. And, you know, like you say, 2-1 is is, uh, not great to lose a game, but, you know, 3-1 makes it very difficult. I think they said uh, on TV tonight that the last time he came back from a two-goal deficit in Europe in a knockout tie was in the Ferris Cup in 1970. Uh, oh God! Yeah, Ramsey turns around to Genduzzi. He's like, "What the fuck? What the fuck?" Like Ramsey almost gets there. Um, and credit, yeah. I mean, uh, Aaron Ramsey. You know, since he signed that deal with the Juventus, I mean, I think maybe he's feeling a little bit kind of nostalgic about his time at, again at Arsenal, or he's just a great pro. But he's been—you couldn't fault him, really. I think, no. uh, in terms of his commitment. Uh, and it's a shame that some of his teammates didn't follow suit tonight. Yeah. But I, I do also think it's a really disappointing game. I would say I think we've had a bit of bad luck in the last two games. I do think that. Well, um, well, what's the bad luck? The red card? I think the red card. I think some of the, I think the offside. I mean, who knows what Birmingham would have done when he went through. I think, you know, mm. some of the officiating in the last game. Uh I think I think we have had a bit of bad luck, but nevertheless, as frustrated as I was by the sending off, I expected us to respond to it better than we did. Tonight. Yeah, I mean, we did have bad luck, but we also had a brilliant chance to win the North London Derby as well. So, you know, we, we, we shot and ourselves in bit, the foot as much as... good luck, potentially. Yeah. Um, all right, so 3-1, away from home, not great. The one-away goal gives you... Uh, some hope, I think, because a 2-0 win, yeah. win at home is not beyond the realms of possibility. It's an uphill task, but we're going to have to do it without Socrates, and we're going to have to do it without Aubameyang. So, um, without Lacazette, you mean? Or Lacazette, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah. And we need something more from Aubameyang in, in next week's game. Uh, as well. So, look, it's a difficult night. It's been a bad night, I think, uh, it's one of those where after a couple of good games and good performances, it feels like 
it feels like we've taken a, a little step backwards again. But uh, I suppose much depends now on Sunday as to how how damaging this week is for Arsenal in terms of what we're trying to do this season because, you know, a bad result on Sunday, bad result in this game that we can't turn around and all of a sudden, you know, our our pathway to the Europa League or to the Champions League via the, via the Europa League may be gone, lose to Manchester United and it's it's very difficult. I mean, do you fear that in some ways this will be deflating for us going into that game or one that might redouble our efforts? And and when you think about the boost that United have had this week with their yeah. win in Europe, I mean, they're going to be on top of the world. I mean, they're in, in great form anyway. Uh, I think they're all feeling pretty confident and happy at Manchester United at this moment in time. Whereas with Arsenal, we always feel like a, a work in progress in a way, you know? There's always yeah. something that we're dealing with that we're trying to rationalise or get on top of. And sometimes it feels like we're only ever one defeat away from a crisis, you know, and that's mm-hmm. that's kind of the position where we are. And it's... Uh, I think it puts in real stark relief how big the next week is. I mean, Uno Amory's got to get the right result against either United or Wren, or it's kind of game over, I think, for the season. Um, mm. If we lose to United... And then don't, and then go out against Ren. I think it's going to be really, really tough. I don't think we can afford to lose to United if we're going to make the top four. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, I I feel for him because I think he has. I think turning it round is putting it too big, but I think in the last few games he's put something together and it's looked like, oh, okay, we can see where we're going. We can see a bit of some building blocks here, and then tonight it's really kind of imploded a bit and we yeah. are on a on the precipice of going out yeah uh, let's not forget of course we lost to Barté we turned that around but this is a better team than Barté crucially sure. it's a team it, crucially it's a team that can score at the Emirates that's the real concern uh well, I think with players like Ben Arthur and Saar, I mean, a lot of teams can score at the Emirates. Let's not... Yeah, that's what uh, I was going to say. You know, that doesn't really set them apart. I mean, they're 10th in Liga, so, you know, they're a much better team than Bate, but that's not to say they're a, a brilliant side who... No. I'm not trying to dress up the, the result. I'm just saying in terms of the scale of the task, it's a much bigger one at yeah. this point than it was in the last round. What um, would you... If you... I mean, would you think it more possible that we could beat Wren in the second leg than beat United on Sunday? Because I was, you know, I was I was earlier this week, and this is, you know, this is obviously a reaction to what's happened tonight, but, you know, I was feeling relatively confident about what we might do on Sunday, and now after a game like Same. this, you go, okay, I'm not sure now. I'm not necessarily sure. I felt sure. really good about it. I, I don't know if it was because I felt for United that the Champions League might have been quite draining. You know, their squad is thin at the moment as well. They're bringing on players against PSG that I've barely heard of. Um, and I thought this might be an OK time to play them. I just felt that it would be a bit of a cup final for us. And like the Chelsea game, like the Spurs game at the Emirates, we might have enough to beat them after tonight. All bets are off. And to be honest, even if we get past Ren we've still got to get past some decent teams in this competition. We've got to get past, you know, potentially a, a Napoli, potentially mm. a Chelsea. Um, I don't think the Europa League is the easy road by, by any stretch. No. Uh, so 
it's kind of an impossible situation. You can't really prioritise either. He's got to go and try and win both these games. It's asking a huge amount of someone like Lauren Koscielny to yeah. get through the next week and play both those matches, but he's absolutely going to have to. We've got to hope that Aubameyang finds some form, some confidence, begins to repay the debt that I think he's accrued in the last two matches. And we've got to hope Lacazette comes to face United absolutely fresh and firing. I think. Yeah, yeah, there's... Um... Uh, there's a test for this group now, you know, between next week and obviously Sunday. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, we win as a team, we lose as a team, and, you know, everyone can get behind that kind of talk. But these guys need to start performing as a team uh, because this season is, like you say, we're not, if not on the precipice, we're, we're getting closer and closer to it. So um, we'll see what happens on Sunday. And, of course, we'll talk about that on Monday in the, uh, in the Arscast Extra so yeah let's hope it's a goodly morning yes let's hope thank you to you and your terrifying dogs this evening James we'll, we'll chat to you on Monday <laughs> cheers bye bye thank you to James we will talk to him of course on Monday in the Arscast Extra and follow him on Twitter if you're not already he is at Gunnerblog at Gunnerblog can we do it in the second leg who knows can we do it on Sunday against Manchester United who the fuck knows I don't think we know anything about this Arsenal team this season. There's just too much going on, and every time we think we've got something figured out, some other fucking shit comes along, and we're like, oh, what the fuck? What? <sighs> they make our brains work and our hearts hurt. I think that might be a, a good way of putting it. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Right, on Sunday we do face Manchester United, so to get a bit of a perspective from that side of things, let's talk now to a Manchester United fan. He writes for The Guardian, a new statesman, and he's written a couple of books about United as well. Daniel Harris, hi to you. Hello, how's it going? Good, thanks. I want to start by talking Champions League. It's not necessarily relevant to Sunday, but uh, on Tuesday evening I was watching uh, the football, Ajax and Real Madrid, or Real Madrid versus Ajax, and there was an interminable delay uh, in the game when they tried to figure out whether there was going to be a throw-in or not. Eventually, uh, a really good Ajax goal was given, and I saw you on Twitter uh, complaining about VAR and saying how it was... uh, uh, to paraphrase a lot of bollocks, um, I'm curious this morning <laughs> as to what you think about it, given what happened with Manchester United last night and the influence that VAR had on what was an incredible result for your team uh, in Paris. 
Yeah, it was an amazing result. I mean, for me, it's slightly tinged with I feeling the nausea of a come up here because I was meant to be there. Life intervened and I wasn't. Yeah. So you can't yeah. have that that uh, that ecstatic sensation that's not quite there. But um, as far as VAR goes, I feel exactly the same as I felt about it yesterday. Um, it's a bit like when Michael Owen scored for United, when you know in your heart that it's not right, but if it serves the forces of light, then uh, you'll take it when it comes your way. And um, the thing about VAR is that in the end, first of all, I think the most important thing is we're all adults. So much as we love this ludicrous thing of ours, if your team doesn't get a result and you're not over it by the next day or even by the next hour, most of the time, you want to seriously reevaluate your uh, your priorities in life. And I say that as someone who's dedicated ridiculous numbers of hours, pounds, time, relationships, jobs to following United around. Um, football's not just about what happens on the pitch. It's about all the other things that come with it. And sometimes your team gets beaten and sometimes the referee makes a mistake. It's never because the referee made a mistake on purpose. And even when the referee does make a mistake, that isn't why your team lost. Your team lost because they didn't play well enough to win because they had numerous other opportunities over a game that lasts 90 minutes to do something about a refereeing error. So that's one thing. And the second thing is that the moment of ecstasy when your team scores is not only the greatest feeling that we have in football, it's the greatest feeling that most of us ever get in our lives. And VAR compromises that to get correct decisions. I think it's to get them up in theory from 98% to 97 from 97% to 98%. Mm. And that anyone that fell in love with football because of the ratio of correct decisions. And I don't think that this is improving the game, really. I mean, that... That stopping the game is not helping. I don't care if decisions are wrong, um, and I don't really care. I don't really buy the idea that it in, increases the drama either. The drama is there's enough drama there already, and the drama and the ecstasy is about that feeling in the moment. So yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I was obviously leaping around my my living room last night like numerous other morons in the world. But that doesn't mean that I think VAR is a good thing. And actually, while we're here, it doesn't mean I think away goals is a good thing either. I think that's also a load of bollocks. But here yeah. we are. Well, that's a, that's a different uh, argument or a different discussion to have. I mean, uh, you know, playing devil's advocate on this a little bit, um, you know, because there is this idea that we can somehow achieve perfection from officials, which is, you know, completely uh, insane. The same way we can't get perfection from our players or our managers or anything like that. And I do think that, that the the erroneous decisions that happen in football are are just part of the experience. Nevertheless, I don't think there's any escaping the fact that, that VAR is here and it's going to stay. So on that basis, is it not something we have to look at and, again, I'm using the word perfect, but, you know, to try and iron out some of the flaws that exist with it? Because it, it is, I think, in some way shining a light on some of the some of the rules of the game which are now so almost impossible to find consensus on if you like because you know a guy with a with a toe offside is somehow offside or a handball decision like the one given last night when someone fires a ball at you at 60 miles an hour and you're jumping to try and block the shot you know you're not deliberately trying to stop it with your hand if it hits your arm so, um, so you know, is there not a need, uh, despite the objection to VAR, to sort of say, okay, well, look, this is happening, and the best thing we can do is try and make it as good as it can be? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, it seems like we're not getting rid of it. Although I think they did that and they did it in the Bundesliga. But if it's assuming it's staying, it can definitely made better. As far as the penalty last night goes, I actually thought it was due punishment from, our, from uh, Kim Pembe for, for showing it his ass. Um, he turned away from the ball. His arm, if it hits you on the arm, I mean, I thought that was a penalty. Uh, wouldn't have been bothered if it wasn't been given because it was close. But in terms of how we can make it better, I think a lot of it, and I'm speaking as a briefly, but former lawyer here, the laws are really badly drafted. Mm. Um, they don't really tell you what handball is beyond deliberate. They need to give you more detail, I think, about what constitutes deliberate. I actually thought, Peter, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I thought that Peter Walton explained it really well on TV last night as to why he thought it was a penalty. Obviously, the players thought it wasn't because they're putting themselves in that position and thinking, I'd be pissed off if a penalty was given against me there. But the way that I thought Peter, Peter Walton interpreted the laws was actually quite good. Like, he jumped, he turned his back, the arm, the arm wasn't by his side, it was sort of moving in the direction of the ball mm. and wasn't really in control of what he was doing and there was a motion towards the ball, penalty. But that could easily be cleared up if you defined what constitutes handball properly and you got some kind of consensus of perhaps a footballer, um, an official and someone who understands how to write and how to draft to make it, make, take away that element of ambiguity even then, there will always be discussions because uh, currently a lot of the laws leave something to interpretation. So people with nothing better to do were discussing on Monday, Tuesday, whether Harry Kane was onside or offside or not, because it's not obvious according to the laws. So if you're going to have VAR, it does probably make more sense to have black and white, this is and this isn't, mm. and then take away that element of, um, of subjectivity from it and try and be as objective as you can. At the moment, the laws are pretty, are pretty subjective. And I don't think that's a bad thing because let the, let the referees make a decision. They should try and be consistent in the game. Don't really care that much if different referees perceive different and apprise different, different circumstances in different ways. But if you're going to have VAR, then you probably do need to have a more solid set of agreed upon circumstances. But, um, what, what is what? Yeah, but isn't that the whole point of a law? In that it's not necessarily supposed to be subjective. Therefore, you can try and have some consistency in how those things are applied. You know, um, that- in, a, in a legal system, I mean, some some shit is strict liability for sure, um, but other things not really. That's why we have courts and juries to argue about facts, to argue about interpretation of facts. But is that not about the punishment or potential punishment for transcending the law rather than the law itself? So you steal Um, a car, you've broken that law. Simple as that. It then goes to a jury in a court to say, okay, how are we going to punish this guy? What are the circumstances in which he stole this car? And that can play into that. But the simple fact of right and wrong, stealing a car versus not, that's not up for dispute. Right, but what if you stole the car because um, you were pregnant and you needed to get to hospital because you were having a baby? And well, exactly. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, you know, it's been, like, so with a handball, for example, what were the mitigating circumstances? Were, was he, there was a penalty in uh, the Napoli game, Napoli-Juventus the other day, where um, Fabian Ruiz like, walloped a ball at, I can't remember which Juve defender it was, I think it, um, I think it was uh, Alexandro, yeah. for about a yard away, whacked him in the armpit. They went to VAR, and I literally could not believe it when the referee pointed to the penalty spot. Yeah, me neither. That is, that's a more, but what I'm saying is there are always, because that is a circumstance where the ball hit you in the arm in the penalty area, but 
there'll be mitigating circumstances and the facts are not necessarily agreed upon. So there will be some offences in law that are strict liability. If X happens, then Y happens. And you might want to change the laws of football to reflect that. If the ball hits you on the hand in the penalty area, it's a penalty. doesn't matter what else. I mean, I wouldn't advise it because then you'd have people trying to boot the ball at people's hands. Yeah. So, but you could change the law to make things strict liability where if X happens, then Y happens. And there's no, there's no discussion, there's no debate about it. But in, in the most laws, that's not the case. There's You argue over what the set of facts are and you argue over mitigating circumstances and you argue over what that person could have done and then you discuss what the punishment should be. And if I was going to make improvements to football, this VAR thing would certainly not be it. I'd be thinking about p- proper timekeeping, for example. Mm. I think like when I come away from a game, the thing that I find frustrating is not the refereeing decision because of what I said before. I think that the team that I support and any team that's playing in a game have time to do something about any refereeing decision. You have to play well enough to take the, the mistakes that the referee makes out of the equation. Whereas how fast you retrieve the ball after scoring a goal to make it 2-1 should not have anything to do with whether you get that opportunity to make it 2-2. Yeah, well, that's... So, yeah. So those th- there, are other, there are things I'll change about football. I'd also change, if we're talking about last night's penalty, I'd be thinking... About about changing something, uh, changing the, the laws, the, the rules as regards to penalty. Like if someone knocks someone accidentally over the byline when they're facing away from goal, should that be a free shot or goal? I would say probably not. I would say that if you deny someone a goal-scoring opportunity in the penalty area or outside the penalty area, I'd give a penalty for that. But if you accident, if you knock someone, in, if you foul someone in the penalty area when they're not likely to take a shot or goal or to score, I wouldn't give a penalty for that. So <laughs> according to the way I would adjust the laws. Of- Football, I wouldn't have given United a penalty last night. Yeah. But although, according to the existing laws, I think it was marginal, but yeah, it probably was the right decision. Yeah, I'm just trying to imagine the. Uh the amount of debate things like that would would generate because what's shown over the last couple of days is that even with all the replays and the benefit of replays from multiple angles, there's never going to be a consensus about decisions that are made by referees. Uh, you know, we've seen journalists and pundits arguing about the Harry Kane thing uh, all week as well. So uh, it, it does add another layer uh, to everything. And, and uh, I don't know, maybe it just becomes another thing over which we can argue and lose our shit. So we look forward to that being implemented in the uh, in the Premier League next season. I think you're right. I can't handle the TGM. Forget all of that. <laughs> uh, right. Look, I want to talk to you a bit about Manchester United because uh, Arsenal face Manchester United this Sunday, a huge game. Um, maybe not quite at the level we both might want it to be when we think back to some of the incredible games between United and Arsenal in the past and what they meant and what they meant for the destination of the Premier League Premier League title but you know swings and roundabouts and ups and downs and we are where we are but it is a big game in terms of um, qualification for the Champions League via the top four Um Manchester United under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer remind me a little of the warden's wife in the Green Mile. If you've ever seen the film, she is. You haven't. Okay, so but tell me about it. Right. So she is. uh, The the, the, long story short, she's very sick. She's got cancer, and the warden. He's the warden of a prison, and in the prisoner is a in the prison. There's a prisoner called John Coffey who's got magic powers, and. 
in the end of the film, no spoilers here, it was 1999, people, if you haven't seen it. Anyway, he goes along and he basically sucks the cancer out of her body. He ends up dead. It's not great for him, and I'm not saying Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is going to end up dead, but I'm reminded a little that the, the, the warden's wife is Manchester United, and the cancer was Jose Mourinho, and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is, is John Coffey, who has sort of revitalized uh, a club which looked like four or five months ago was going in entirely the wrong direction. So, I mean, I'm curious as to your thoughts on the job that he's doing um, and whether or not you expected him to have this kind of an impact. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, I haven't seen The Green Mile uh, probably because I was kind of busy in 1999. Uh, sorry. Oh, fucking hell. I <laughs> but to, to, to go back to those games, I think I, those games between United and Arsenal from when Wenger arrived until, I guess, the, the 2005 Cup final are uh, by an absolute mile, the greatest football, the greatest, most intense, f- most skilled football I've ever seen. I don't think any of us mm. have ever seen anything like that. I don't think English football's ever seen anything like that or ever will again, actually. Um, but to go back, to, as far as Solskjaer goes and how I thought it was going to go, it's funny because, um, well, not that funny, sitting on an editor's desk is a pitch that I wrote just after he got the job saying, this is what I think is going to happen. And uh, he replied to me saying, nah, he's just not Mourinho. That's like, it was, uh, then a couple of the games in, he replies and says, yeah, it's just anyone could have done this. It's not Mourinho. He's just making people happy at work. Um, <laughs> and I then explained in detail why I didn't think that was going to be the case. And um, I think we've seen quite a lot of that. I mean, it's obviously really easy and important to say that he's made everyone feel nice. He's really positive. He's an amazing motivator. Um, and uh, he's getting the best out of the attacking players because he understands what attacking football is, how to play it. Um, but there's a lot more to it than that. Um, what he's done is that you can literally go game by game and look at the way tactically he's set United up, look at his tactical interventions during the game and look at the way that he's swapped players around and see the way that it's progressed from when he started to where we are now. Our, and look at the performances that he's getting out of peripheral players like McTominay and Fred and see that that is straight out of the Fergie playbook. So sometimes you have a situation where it's just the right man in the right place at the right time. And I think that's what you get with him. People sometimes say about people, well, um, he's one of those people who no one's got a bad word to say about. And Ole Gunnar Solskjaer kind of inverts that in that he's uh, he's someone about whom people only have rhapsodic words to say. Mm. And he also he's, he has luck. And I wouldn't I don't I don't mean that like you toss a coin. I mean that he makes things go for him by the way that he performs. It's again an inversion of that. Uh, Ian Holloway once said that he's having bad luck. He'd, He'd fall into he'd fall into a barrel of the tits and come up sucking his thumb. Not like a Solskjaer would fall into a barrel of the thumbs and come up sucking the tits. He he just has this unusual, unique personal quality of someone who's so comfortable in their own skin. They get and they understand life, and I think that's what we're seeing on the pitch. The players, you know, when things were going poorly under Mourinho, were were scapegoated by the manager, which is never a good thing. Uh, but uh, I imagine there was probably, as much as United fans were aware of what kind of a character Mourinho was, there must have been a lot of doubt over certain players anyway. You know, it was, you know, you look at the squad, it's it's expensively assembled, there's a lot of really good players in it, but when they perform that way, uh, uh, for that length of time, it must create some doubts over the quality of those players. So, I think one of the things that's interesting to me is is the way that Solskjaer has has reinvigorated 
characters who looked down and out under Mourinho and who are now performing on a on a pretty consistent basis. You know, have fans' perception of some of those players changed or was there perhaps more faith in them because there was an awareness of what Mourinho was and what kind of a malevolent Im- impact he was having on the squad? I mean, in the first, I mean, as far as Mourinho goes, I mean, obviously it is amusing to see what is happening now. Literally, it gets more and more of a repudiation of everything that he is and everything that he stands for. But I would hesitate and I wouldn't blame everything that happened at United during his time on him. There's uh, plenty of blame to go around and there's no need to be sparing with it. And what Mourinho did in the first instance is take United, who were broken, and take under Van Gaal and take them to a League Cup uh, to the, Euro- the Europa League, which completed the set for us, which is for a lot of people a lifetime's work, and then take us to second in the league. And that is in no small part due to what Mourinho's work. And it's easy to just chuck it all away and say, well, the football was terrible, Mourinho's terrible. And there are things about Mourinho that I didn't like, that weren't right, that weren't right for United. And he did sort of build some of it up, only to smash it down again in a childish fit of peak that lasted about 18 months. But the blame is not all Mourinho's. As far as the players go, also, they have to share plenty of the blame. Um, Lapses in concentration, lapses in effort. Those things are, they're culpable for that. Mourinho didn't get the most out of Paul Pogba. Anyone can see that Paul Pogba is a brilliant, amazing talent. Mm. But he also didn't put it in. And it's Mourinho's job to get it out of him. And when you're, when we've all had a boss or bosses who are dicks. And when that happens, it's harder to, harder to do your best. But at the same time, you still have responsibility to your talent, to the people that play with you, to the people that pay pay you to do your best. The players were not doing that. And it's a kind of weird, vicious, virtuous circle in that you see it when there's a manager that a club shouldn't have. If you lose the example of Roy Hodgson at Liverpool, basically the fans got him fired. They, they realised fairly early on, probably from the beginning, this bloke is not suitable to manage this team. Let's get rid of him by making it as unpleasant as he can until the board go or he the board act or he goes. So that's what they did. Mm. United, United appointed Moyes and uh, the support was loyal to Moyes because they wanted it to work. I guess they were probably loyal to Fergie who forced the issue of appointing him. Uh, I mean, who knows why he did that? We can all have our suggestions as to whether it was to preserve some kind of power by giving the job to someone, someone who would be thankful for it, to preserve some influence, to make sure that he wouldn't be usurped. I mean, who knows? But Moyes was largely supported, so how do we get rid of Moyes? The players did it by not turning up often enough, not putting it in often enough so that they don't really have options. And it's all very easy to hate the players for that. But again, it's a bit more complicated than that because it's a bit more nuanced. Because if you're a footballer, it's a short career. You want to get the most out of your talent. You don't want some dickhead jeopardising that by being bad at their job when you could be good at your job. So again, it's annoying in like a very basic level to say, Pogba, you've played up, you've sat there on the halfway line for the last 40 minutes. What's going on? On the other hand, we're all much happier now that he did that because it happened, Mourinho went, and now we've got someone who's doing a better job. So yeah. the players, it's true that before Solskjaer came in, there were various players you thought, well, who are the players that I can be certain are of the standard that I want them to be for United? And I guess the answer to that for me was De Gea, Rashford and Pogba. For various reasons, there were others that you think, well, they might have it, but not sure. And since then... Obviously, a few more of those players have stepped up. Luke Shaw, in particular, has been absolutely brilliant the last few weeks uh, and steadily improving where it looks like 
he's being coached, he's having his confidence built, he's playing games, he's trying more things. And that's what he wasn't going to get under Mourinho that he's getting under Solskjaer. Mm. There are other players who improved under Mourinho. That Jesse Lingard came on a lot under Mourinho. Rashford became a different player in the last few weeks of Mourinho. And I know he's one of the people that people like to cite. Look at the difference in Rashford under Solskjaer. But that's not entirely true. He was always going to turn into someone who should be a world beater when he developed the ability to hold the ball up. Mm. And got that. In the last few weeks of Mourinho, he stepped up a level. He was able to retain possession, so he'd get more of the ball. He'd play in the middle more. And what you're seeing is a culmination of all the work that, yes, Mourinho has done with him over the last few years. He might have got there sooner under another manager, but it would be wrong to say Mourinho's got nothing to do with any of this, even if everything has changed since he left. So what about the, just finally, what about the the longer-term situation uh, with, with Solskjaer? Is he, to your mind, a candidate to be given the job on a, a full-time basis? Or is it a case that he's doing the best job that anyone could have envisaged him doing uh, in the interim period when United sourced the long-term manager? I mean, where do, you, where do you see it going? Does it depend on what happens between now and the end of the season? I mean, if he continues to progress you in the, in the uh, Champions League and you finish in the top four, I mean, he's made a very good case for the job to be his. Yeah, he's made, if you're not finishing the top four, I would say he's made an unanswerable case. The Champions League was always gravy. But doing what he did yesterday showed very specific skills. Being able to overturn a deficit like that, the way the discipline with which United defended. I know people will say United were lucky, but PSG only made two or three clear-cut chances. They had a lot of the ball, not very many chances, because United's game plan was right, the players' heads were right, and the in-game management was right. Um, the changes of tactics for the different phases of the game, the way that they had planned to create chances to score, showed some very specific abilities from Solskjaer, aside from the fact that he didn't have his, hold of his first-choice midfield playing. Mm. So, And also Jesse Lingard, who's someone who sort of elevates the level of the other players most of the time. So that he showed, although the Champions League, I would never have judged him on the Champions League, showing that he could go to Paris and get a result like that, and although United didn't dominate the game, and that United were dominated... I think you would struggle to say that it was luck or that they didn't deserve what they ended up getting. And that's very special. Obviously, if they collapse from now and end up finishing sixth, then there's a conversation to be had. But if they finish fourth, he's, I would say the other candidates for the job haven't proved what he's proved, which is an ability to do the job that they're trying to get. And if Solskjaer's proved that he can do that job, then he would have earned the opportunity to have a go at doing it. And obviously, circumstances change, but he's got a summer... I think he knows where he needs to strengthen. It's fairly obvious where the team can get better. And if he is backed and goes and gets the right players, there's no reason to think that he isn't good at this. If you'd have asked me which of the Fergie players I thought had the right elements to do this job, he would be close to the top of the, the league, <laughs> close to the top of the list. He did a phenomenal job at Mould. And, I mean, people take the piss because it's not a good league. But if you look at what Mould had done prior to him getting there, never won the league, and what they did after him getting there, win the league twice. And the way that he did it, he got rid of their top scorer, who was a sort of a lump, who played in the Norwegian style. He got them playing football and it worked. He's also got some pretty good people to turn to, to advise people who know about winning. When people talk about Solskjaer, they keep coming back to him being nice. It's not really about that because he's also got that force of personality, that nastiness, like the yarn Rio Ferdinand tells when he turns up for United having to sign for 30 million quid and he has a loose first touch in his first training session. Solskjaer says, how much? 
or after you <laughs> beat Chelsea in the cup and he says to Alan Shearer, um, yeah, I, I wanted to, talking about how he won the cup in 99. He says, I think you might have played in that one, Alan, did you? That nastiness and that ability to regenerate and that ability to not fall too much in love with anyone left. And I think, I think Solskjaer's got that. All right. Well, look, we'll see, uh, we'll see what happens between now and the end of the season. Obviously, uh, I hope it goes badly wrong for him and you uh, on Sunday, but there you go. That's football for you. And we can review it all uh, on video on Monday uh, and, and spend all day arguing about the contentious decisions that are bound to happen. Uh, Daniel, thanks a million. No, I'll see you again. Thank you very much indeed to Daniel. He's on Twitter at Daniel Harris, at Daniel Harris. I know he was at pains to point out that not everything was Jose Mourinho fault. I didn't have the heart to correct him. I choose to believe everything that goes wrong in this world is somehow related to Jose Mourinho. I don't know how. I don't really have any evidence for it, and it's probably nonsense, but I like to believe it anyway, because in these crazy times, it gives me some small measure of comfort. Arsenal versus Manchester United on Sunday. Not quite winner takes all when it comes to the top four, but it is going to have a big, big impact on which team finishes in there, I think. It might well be a case that if we win the game, the balance tips in our favour. Um, won't be done and dusted necessarily if we don't win, but uh, yeah, it's one of those games where we just can't afford to lose, that's for sure. Um what else? I don't know what else we can say because it's uh, it's late now on Thursday and we're still digesting that uh, that defeat to Ren. The only other bit of news that's come in is uh, Emmanuel Frimpong. He is retired from football. He's announced his retirement from football. Former gunner Emmanuel Frimpong. He didn't play that many games for us. I think he scored one goal. He got one red card. I was at that game, I think, uh, against Liverpool. But we'll all remember him fondly for uh, scaring the absolute piss out of Samir Nan during a, a, could have been a League Cup game, midweek game anyway, where I believe the story goes, if I'm right, Nasri swung a punch or, or something or a slap at, at Frimpong and then ran off uh, shrieking as Frimpong came after him uh, down the tunnel, uh, in the tunnel area, our famous tunnel area that Ivan Gazidis was was so very fond of. So look, I'm going to leave it there for this podcast. Thank you very much, as always, for listening. Really appreciate it. Do give us a review or a rating on iTunes if you feel like doing that. If you don't feel like doing that, that's also fine. Remember, there's lots more to listen to on our Patreon. If you want to support the site and everything that we do here, patreon.com forward slash arsblog. You can sign up for a fiver a month, five euros a month, uh, plus VAT, only VAT if you're in the EU. If you're not in the EU, you do not pay any VAT. Uh, so uh, get on board there. You get lots of extra podcasts and articles uh, to read, and there's loads more to come on there too. So we'll uh, keep fingers crossed for Sunday that we can do it. I think we need a big game. We need a big result and a big performance to beat Manchester United. I do hope we get it. As always, we'll be talking about it on Monday in the Arscast Extra. Until then, take it easy. Cheers. Bye-bye.
Arsenal Football Club have today been informed by the FA that the league title win in 1989 has been overturned because of VAR. New TV footage shows that Alan Smudger-Smith failed to make contact with the ball for the first goal. As such, the game has now been declared a 1-0 win to Liverpool and the title has been awarded to... The 1978 Peru World Cup squad. I've gone too far this time! Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. 